Good morning, everyone. I'm not sure if you're aware of times in your life where you were pretty clear that God was trying to get your attention. Uh, Maybe the snow got your attention this morning. Maybe there are circumstances in your life that have got your attention. Uh, We've been looking through this month at uh, the Reformation, uh, and we've been doing that because it's the 500th anniversary of Uh, what many people would say would be the most significant turning point in uh, the life of the church following its uh, birth nearly 2,000 years ago. And at the center of this event that we've been looking at is a man by the name of Martin Luther. It's interesting to me what God used to get his attention. There were actually two things that stand out, and uh, they were somewhat unusual. The first was a lightning bolt. So uh, it was, the year is 15, 1505, and at the age of 21, uh, Martin had already completed both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and he was going to begin studies in law. He was on horseback, returning to university from his home, and a terrible uh, thunderstorm uh, came upon him, and he found himself in the middle of it. Riding along and saw that the lightning was getting closer and actually a lightning bolt struck very close to him, so close that it knocked him from his horse and he cried out in panic, uh, St. Anne, help me and I'll become a monk. That was his prayer. And he made it through the thunderstorm and made it safely to the university and to his father's great disappointment and disgust and anger, apparently, he followed through on his commitment, on his vow. He held, uh, uh, arranged one last party with all of his friends, sold all of his possessions, and entered the monastery. It, It wasn't the monastery that changed him. It wasn't the life of a monk that changed him, however. When he uh, joined the monastery, his life consisted of a very hard, um, what people call an ascetic life. So there would be set prayers seven times a day, the the latest one being at 2 a.m. And they would have a uh, a rigorous discipline of of prayers, uh, regular fasting. He would go in for confession, and confession was supposed, there wasn't a lot of, sin you would think you could get up to as a, as a monk in a monastery. He would, at his peak, uh, confess his sins for six hours a day. And even the person that he was confessing his sins got fed up with it and said, like, you're, you're going overboard. Can you come back with some real sins? Like, this is, this is too much. Martin Luther would later say, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. He was disciplined. But as I said, it wasn't becoming a monk that changed Luther. Something else did. It was a lightning bolt, and it was a verse of Scripture that he really hated. Sometimes people will tell me about a verse that they really love, and it's really changed their life. He hated the verse, okay? Uh, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, 
the righteous shall live by faith. He didn't just hate the verse, he hated that phrase, the righteousness of God. He hated it because it represented to him this impossible standard that he could never live up to. It, It was the righteousness of God that condemned him. It was the righteousness of God that sent him into the confession booth for six hours a day. It was the righteousness of God that just reminded him he doesn't measure up. He's blown it. And it was the righteousness of God that reminded him that one day God would judge and punish him for his many sins. He hated the righteousness of God. But as he thought about this phrase that he hated, he came through his studies to realize that God's righteousness is something that God doesn't just hold against people. Here in the verse, it is, in verse 16 says, it is good news. That there is uh, good news. It, it is, in fact, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That there is something good that God does for all who believe. And he works the power of salvation. So then when he comes to verse 17, he sees that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that this righteousness of God is something he can receive. And that he can not only receive it by faith, that as he lives by faith, that there can be uh, uh, an enjoyment of that righteousness of God. He can walk in that righteousness of God. The idea that that righteousness, righteousness that had eluded him when he tried to work really hard to get it could be received as a free gift by faith. Set his heart on fire. He had a sense of love and gratefulness towards God that motivated a love, motivated a desire that never, was, nev- never went out. He had come to discover what he would later term faith alone. Now, we've been looking and we've said that there are five things that really summarize all that the Reformation is about. And they refer to them as the five solas because they were five Latin phrases, but we can call them the five alones or the five onlys. And we, we started um, looking the first week at Scripture alone and said, Scripture ought to be up on the highest shelf, the top shelf in our life, highest authority, nothing else beside it. Then we looked at grace alone and said that God saves us as a free gift and there's nothing that we can add to it. Today we consider how do we receive that gift. If God has given us such an incredible gift as of his grace, how do we receive it? And we will look at what the reformers called faith alone. It's my contention that this doctrine of grace alone, of faith alone, has been so powerful that it has affected our uh, Western uh, culture on, on a whole. And so we'll, we'll see how faith alone impacts just general culture and how, we stum- how general culture stumbles in getting it a little bit wrong a lot wrong, uh, how it's affected the Protestant church and how we can be, get off track and get it a little bit wrong or a lot wrong and how it's also affected the Roman Catholic church and what some of the unique 
temptations are to, to that tradition. So pitfalls unique to each, but we want to hear what does the Bible have to say. Let's start with faith alone's impact on popular culture. Because we need to clarify what faith alone doesn't mean. Faith alone isn't faith in faith alone. What I mean is, faith doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. And often, some, we, we can get to thinking when there's, with, with this emphasis on faith alone that it is actually uh, faith that saves people. Faith alone isn't faith in faith alone. And I'm sure that sounds confusing. So let me try and explain. You heard me describe where Martin Luther was coming from. He was a man who had a very clear sense of the righteous standard of God, how far he had fallen from that standard. He had a very clear sense that uh, God's justice in, in punishing sinners was, was right and, and, and appropriate. When he understood that by faith alone he could be forgiven as a gift, it filled him with love and a desire to to serve God and to honor God and to live out a life of gratefulness to him. Compare that approach of Luther with another person. Just as an example, uh, actress Sophia Loren. She said, I'm not a practicant. And by that she means she doesn't really go for religion in any particular way, okay? I'm not a practicant, but I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven. Otherwise, it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those those orchids over there. And I should go straight, straight to heaven. Now, Sophia Loren, I believe, believes in a kind of faith alone. But her faith alone is kind of a faith in that is we could call wishful thinking. Her faith is that that things are going to work out in the end, that God couldn't possibly punish me because that just wouldn't be nice. And uh, her, her understanding of faith Far from being unique, I think her understanding of of faith is as Canadian as hockey and Tim Hortons. Like, this is, is when when we say faith in our culture, it it comes across very similar to this. This idea of, it's going to be okay. Um, Just believe. Uh, Just just have faith. And it's all going to work out in the end. But when the Bible talks about faith, it isn't just talking about a kind of positive thinking that trusts in in trusting and believes in believing. The Catholic writer, Brother Andre Marie, says this, I find that the vast majority of Protestants believe one can be saved without any particular faith, as long as you're a good person and don't hurt anyone. I'm not sure about you, but I've met a lot of the people that Brother Andre Marie is talking about here. And it, he's putting his finger on something that, that people have this wishful thinking that everything's going to work out all right as long as you're you know, not an awful murderer or something. That's not the faith that we're talking about. And so if that's your understanding of faith, 
You don't find any encouragement in Martin Luther. You won't find any support in the Bible. That's not the kind of faith that we're talking about. It's not what the, the kind of faith that the Bible describes. And Romans 3, verses 23 and 24 explains why. Let's look at what it says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I suspect that Sophia Loren hasn't read verse 23 or at least thought very deeply about it. If she did, she would probably conclude that verse 23 is, is maybe one of the verses in the Bible that's not very nice because it says some things about the human condition that, that seem to conflict with, with how she sees herself. According to verse 23, her soul isn't as white as an orchid, that none of our souls are pure and without blemish. But many people start where Sophia Loren does and they assume all they need is to have positive thoughts, to be, uh, just to believe, to have positive thinking. But unless we start where Martin Luther did, we don't realize that we need grace. We need a gift. We need someone to save us. And if God does save us, it couldn't be on the basis of our moral achievements because the scriptures say we, our, our moral achievements don't really add up to much in comparison to the standard. Verse 24 declares that even though we have all sinned, we are justified. That means we are considered righteous or treated as righteous, declared righteous. And that is by God's grace as a gift to us. It comes as a, as a pardon. And that pardon only comes through Jesus Christ. So faith isn't believing in yourself. It isn't believing that you're a pretty good person. It isn't believing that things will just work out in the end. It isn't just believing in believing. It also isn't just agreement with various truths about God. You don't get any special treatment from God because you're not an atheist. Some people get this wrong. They say, oh, that person believes in God. Like, because they're not an abject atheist, that that somehow counts for something special. That's not the faith that we're talking about. It's not just, I I hold to all of those truths as well. That's not the faith that we're talking about. When we talk about faith alone, we're not just talking about believing in a creed or believing that there's a God somewhere. James 2.19 explains why. It says, You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here he's saying, even Satan believes in God in the sense that he knows that God exists. That's not the issue for for Satan. Satan believes even certain true things about God. Here James says, you believe that God is one. Do you know why he says you believe God is one? He's making reference to the Hebrew Shema, that that little verse of scripture that gets rolled up inside of the, the mezuzah that you see on a Jewish doorframe, right? Deuteronomy 6.4 and following. He's saying that understanding, God is one, you got that right. Your, your theology as far as that goes is accurate. You, you've, you've understood some things about God and, and that's good. But as far as that goes, Satan even does that. Satan knows that God is one. 
Satan is a monotheist. He, he has a basic understanding of, uh, of the nature of God. But with Satan, that basic understanding is not followed by a basic commitment of his will. It isn't accompanied by a loyalty and an allegiance. It isn't demonstrated in his life. And so just agreeing with various truths about God is not what we're talking about when we say faith alone. It is faith that is accompanied by uh, a commitment of our will. Faith isn't just faith in itself. It trusts specifically in one who can rescue, in the only one who can rescue. The faith we're talking about is faith in the rescuing Messiah. It is faith in the Son who can save Faith in the Son who is our Lord. B.B. Warfield put it like this. He said, It is not faith that saves, but faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in any other Savior or in this or that philosophy or human conceit or in any other gospel than that of Jesus Christ and Him as crucified brings not salvation but a curse. He's saying it's not like there's something magical about just believing in anything. It is belief specifically in a Savior, and it comes with this heart commitment to him. We don't just get to make up our faith as we go along. We can't just imagine ways that we would like our destiny to unfold, and God just honors that and makes it so. We are responding to God and to the, this salvation that he's prepared for us. And if our condition is as dire as the Bible describes and our rescue is as costly as it costly to God as the uh, the scriptures record for us. Then to reject that salvation, to reject the rescue that He provided, has to be the greatest rejection of God that that one a person could make. As Galatians two sixteen says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It is in a person, in a rescuer, in a savior. So the faith we're talking about isn't positive thinking or intellectual agreement. Faith alone is faith in a person whom God has has revealed to us can save us. It's putting all your eggs in one basket with Jesus Christ. So faith alone isn't faith in faith alone. Faith doesn't save, Jesus does. Okay? So faith alone isn't faith that, faith that is alone either, though. If someone has turned from sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, there should be works of love. There should be something that you can see. Invisible faith should be demonstrated in visible, uh, visible life change. So faith alone, and when we're talking about this, this thing called faith alone, we're not talking about a faith that is alone. It's all by itself and doesn't, does, isn't visible in any other part of a person's life. Again, that sounds confusing, so I will explain. Interestingly, when Martin Luther and the other reformers started talking about faith alone, that we're saved by faith alone, or we are justified, that word that we saw earlier, declared righteous by God, by faith alone, the Catholic Church rightly pointed out that the only verse in the entire Bible that mentions faith alone explicitly denies it, or at least seems to. 
See, the reformers were teaching faith alone because of verses like uh, 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 2.16, the one that we looked at just just a moment ago, Galatians 2.16, which says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Completely beside any of those things that you do to, to, to obey God, God saves us by faith apart from those things. He justifies us apart from those things. But critics of the Reformation said, what about James 2.24? On the face of it, James 2.24 seems to be saying the exact opposite of that. James said, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's not, not that. You've got it wrong. So how do you pull those two verses together that say that someone is justified apart from works of law and another one that says that we are justified by works and not by faith alone? What Martin Martin Luther and and reformers said was those two verses aren't talking about uh, two different different things in in denying one, one another. In fact, instead of contradicting each other, they're actually making a helpful clarification and commentary on one another. He looked to the context of James 2.24 for help. So, for instance, James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implication being, no, can't. Here the point is surely that someone who is merely claiming to have faith, but their life doesn't evidence any change, if there are no good works, then that's a problem. Now he doesn't say that what's needed for the person is to add add good works that will save them. He doesn't say that. Instead he says there's something wrong with their faith. He's saying that faith couldn't possibly save someone if there isn't any work, any works of love, if there isn't any heart obedience flowing out of that faith, surely that faith couldn't save a person. The point is that talk is cheap. Anyone can say that they have faith, because it's invisible, who who are we to say? But he's saying, if what you say about your faith doesn't result in any life change, we don't see Jesus in a person's life, I'm not sure that faith can save you. James 2.17 says something similar. It says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here he's saying, again, the faith is, a certain kind of faith is dead faith. He's pointing to a defective faith. Again, faith is invisible. We can't really see who we are all trusting. I can't see who you're trusting in. I don't know what your hopes are set on. I don't know what really in your heart you have committed yourself to, who is really number one in your heart and your heart's allegiance. I don't know that. But this verse teaches that invisible faith without visible fruit is dead faith. There's something wrong with it. And it's not like we have to have enough good deeds to somehow work our way into heaven. But in under examination, a person's life, if they do not demonstrate by their life reality in Jesus Christ, 
reality of, of faith, then there is concern. If someone's life looks like the world, smells like the world, sounds like the world, but they profess to believe in Jesus, we should take that confession with a very serious grain of salt. That's the point of the verse. That's why most verses that describe the final judgment describe Jesus judging people on the basis of how they live. Look at Romans 2, 6 to 8, for instance. It says this, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. At the final judgment, God will examine our lives to see whether our faith is real or not. And at that judgment, if the best evidence that you can give that you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ is a baptismal certificate or a membership application or a prayer that you prayed and there's nothing else, I think the scriptures would say, that's dead faith. That's defective faith. Can that faith save a person? That's the point of the verses. And that's why we keep urging people to live the life that Jesus calls, called us to. That's why we, we urge people to serve. We don't need to have 50 people out in the, in the parking lot uh, serving. We don't need to have uh, 100 people serving in different areas. There, we, we have some, ver- we have some ver- real needs. The, the reason we keep urging people to serve is because it's troubling to us if we see someone who claims to have faith, but, but there's no works. There, there's, there's no desire to, to serve coming out of that because the Bible says that those are the kinds of things that, that should flow out of a life of faith. It's troubling when we see people who, who don't want to give. Not, not just because the, the, the church needs, needs money to keep the lights on, but because if there is no desire to give, uh, th- there, is, there is questions about, uh, about what is the nature of your faith then? What, what has God really done in your heart then? What, what is going on in your life? It's troubling when we see people who don't speak like Christ or act like Jesus, not, not for perfection, but just as a general course of a person's life because we believe that faith, if, there's, if it's not demonstrated anywhere in your life, the Bible says that's dead faith. That's not the faith that saves. Even in a church like ours that believes it's faith alone. It's not faith that is alone. It's not that faith that it's just so invisible nobody can see it. If you put your trust in Jesus, your words will begin to shape, be shaped by his love. Your actions will be influenced by his character, his values. People will be able to see how Jesus is changing you. And so the question is, is that the kind of faith that you have? Is it just an invisible faith that like nobody can see or get any hint or or evidence of? 
Do you have the kind of faith that's not accompanied by works? The kind of faith that the Bible would say, that's faith, but it's kind of dead faith. It's not saving faith. So we said that faith alone isn't faith in faith alone. It's Jesus who saves, not the faith. We've said that faith alone isn't faith, it is alone. That true faith is something you can see. You can see life change. It'll be evidenced by something. But finally, faith alone isn't faith in a ritual. We receive God's gift of salvation and forgiveness through faith, not not through a ritual. For comparison's sake, consider what the Roman Catholic Catechism teaches. Uh, I'll read Article 1263. It says, By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. In those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God, neither Adam's sin nor personal sin nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. Now, if I was teaching about what what happens to us in salvation, this is a pretty great statement. But according to this statement, baptism does all those things. Baptism forgives sins, takes away punishment for sins, heals the person's separation from God. These are all things I teach about salvation. To the Catholic Church, baptism does all those things. In addition, Article 1277 says, baptism is birth into the new life in Christ. In accordance with the Lord's will, it is necessary for salvation, as is the church herself, which we enter by baptism. So, Again, according to the Catholic Church, baptism is birth in the new life life in Christ and necessary for salvation. The confusing thing is, though, that the church would try to clarify that it's faith that saves someone, not not the baptism. It is is faith that, that is important. In fact, they call baptism the sacrament of faith. But the difficulty is that the great majority of Catholics are baptized as babies when, by everyone's admission, none of them had faith. So a person's sins are declared forgiven before they possess faith. The punishment of sins is pardoned before they can articulate faith. The path is cleared for the person to enter into the kingdom of God without faith. And in fact, While it says baptism is necessary for salvation explicitly, certainly the impression is given that faith is not necessary. The practical result of this is that the average person in the Roman Catholic Church, as long as you continue to go through all of the steps, all of the rituals or sacraments, that person is never clearly confronted with the reality that faith, not baptism, not first communion, not confirmation, not any of those things, it is faith and faith alone that opens the door to salvation, that opens the door to forgiveness and the free pardon and grace of God. And since so much comes through a ritual that ultimately doesn't require faith, why would anyone feel the urgency to do something as humbling and as life-changing as clearly repenting of sin and putting all of their trust in a Savior. 
Now, what many Protestants don't understand is that the Catholic Church arrived at these conclusions through some verses that many Protestants haven't really thought very deeply about. Acts 2, 37 to 38 is one example. Peter's just preached his sermon at Pentecost, and these verses record the response. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See here, Peter urges people, they've just heard the good news about Jesus Christ. They've heard the message and they feel convicted. They want to know, what do we do? And the response is, repent and be baptized. Now, Protestants and Catholics both agree that this word repentance, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. In repentance, you turn from sin. In faith, you turn to Jesus. And so they're 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 describing two sides of, of, uh, of the same decision. So we're agreed on repentance, but here the Catholic Church would teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, while we would t- teach that it is incidental. It's not that it's not important, it's just not necessary. So for instance, if someone were to come up to me after the service and said, hey, uh, I need to, I need to uh, meet them in the parking lot, I said, I need to get, go downtown. Uh, or I, I see him after church here. I, I need to go down. I might say, well, grab your coat and get in the car, and he's, here are the directions. You could still get downtown without grabbing your coat, but you might be a little cold, right? But without a car or other means of transportation, you're not going to make it downtown. Grab your coat and go down and, and get in the car are describing two things. One is incidental. One is, is nice, but not necessary. The other is essential. And and so we would teach, repent and be baptized. Uh, you can't make it, you can't uh, find forgiveness and salvation with God without the repentance. And baptism normally accompanies that, but it's not the baptism that is, is, uh, is essential or necessary. As we saw with the thief on the cross last week, Jesus said he was heading for paradise even though he hadn't been baptized or had gone through any of the extra uh, any works to, to add to his salvation. Baptism is often how we express our faith, but it's through faith, not through baptism, that we receive God's grace and forgiveness. That's why other verses where the apostles are asked almost the exact same question, they respond in different ways. Acts 16, verses 30 to 31 says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Almost the exact same question. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Baptism isn't mentioned here because, although it's important, it's not necessary. It's not essential in the same way that faith is. So where does that leave all of you? We've taken the, the whole, whole run through all of the different ways that people can misunderstand faith. Is your faith, as you think of it more, just wishful thinking that everything will turn out in the end? Are you like Sophia Loren thinking, God wouldn't be very nice if I can't go to heaven. That just wouldn't be right. Are you one of those Protestants that Brother Andre talked about believing you can be saved as long as you're a good person and don't hurt anyone? Or is your faith little different than the faith of demons? 
You've got all the facts straight. It's just not accompanied by your commitment of your will. It, it's, it's all up here, but when you're honest with yourself, it's not really accompanied by anything. There's, there's no heart, heart commitment. Anyone can say that they believe, but the scriptures show us talk is cheap, that true faith is visible faith. True faith leads to something. It gets acted out. Does your life show that you believe? Is it obvious to the people around you, boy, Jesus seems to be in control, or something's in control there, and it, awfully seems, to be, it seems to be awfully good because something has, has directed that person in a life of love? Or is your faith more in a ritual? You got the certificate, but there's not the life to accompany it. God's amazing grace, the pardon for guilty sinners, is freely given as a gift. But it's given through faith, through faith alone. So let's uh, look to God in prayer now and ask him to give us wisdom and direction. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would deliver us from fuzzy thinking about what surely is the most crucial area of our lives. So often people will use the same words to talk about different things. So keep us from the confusion. Help us to make things clear. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here whose faith is really just wishful thinking, would you reveal that to them? Would you show them where their trust really is? And I pray, Father, if there are any of us who have our theology right but don't really trust you, really don't follow you with all of our heart, would you show that to us as well? Don't let us treat our faith like it's not that big of a deal. Help us to see that nothing matters more. And may we never take pride in our faith as if it's some noble virtue that you smile on. By faith, all we've ever done is simply admit our sin, agree with you that we don't measure up, and open our hands to you and admit that we have nothing to offer. As we do, we marvel that Jesus gives us a gift of salvation which we never deserved and which we'll never forget. Father, we praise you for that amazing gift. In Jesus' name.